So now if you have your scriptures with you, turn them to 1 Samuel, and uh, it's also printed in your bulletin. You'll notice that uh, I did uh, a few things differently in the bulletin this week. I printed it, um, the entire text. We're not going to read it all. But I also took the time to space it out in a way that will show you how the author broke this thing down intentionally so that he could create a, a meaning within the way the thing is structured. And you'll see it. It's just marvelous. So now, hear God's word. We're going to read from 1 Samuel chapter 2, starting at verse 11. Now, Elkanah went home to Ramah, and the boy, Samuel, was ministering to the Lord in the presence of Eli the priest. Now the sons of Samuel were worthless men. They did not know the Lord. And the custom of the priests with the people was that when any man offered sacrifice, the priest's servant would come while the meat was boiling with a three-pronged fork in his hand, and he would thrust it into the pan or kettle or cauldron or pot. All that the fork brought up, the priest would take for himself. This is what they did at Shiloh to all the Israelites who came there. Moreover, before the fat was burned, the priest's servant would come and say to the man who was sacrificing, Give meat for the priest to roast. He will not accept boiled meat from you, but only raw. And if the man said to him, Let them burn the fat first, and then take as much as you wish, he would say no. You must give it now, and if not, I will take it by force. Thus the sin of the young men was very great in the sight of the Lord, for the men treated the offering of the Lord with contempt. Samuel was ministering before the Lord, a boy clothed with a linen ephod. And his mother used to make for him a little robe and take it to him each year when she went up with her husband to offer the yearly sacrifice. Then Eli would bless Elkanah and his wife and say, May the Lord give you children by this woman for the petition she asked of the Lord. So then they would return home. And indeed, the Lord visited Hannah, and she conceived, and she bore three sons and two daughters. And the boy Samuel grew in the presence of the Lord. Now Eli was very old, and he kept hearing all that his sons were doing in all Israel and how they lay with the women who were serving at the entrance of the tent of meeting. And he said to them, Why do you do such things? For I hear of your evil dealings from all these people. No, my sons, it is no good report that I hear the people of the Lord spreading abroad. If someone sins against a man... God will mediate for him. But if someone sins against the Lord, who can intercede for him? But they would not listen to the voice of their father, for it was the will of the Lord to put them to death. Now the boy Samuel continued to grow both in stature and in favor with the Lord and with man. This is the word of the Lord. The rest of the chapter is printed in your bulletin, but we'll, we'll look at that in just one large section. The book of Samuel and a lot of the biblical narratives, are, it's very easy to 
um, misappropriate them to ourselves. Not necessarily misinterpret, but to misappropriate. In other words, you can read a, a text like this and say, oh, this text is about being faithful like Samuel. And it's about not being faithful like Eli and Hophni and Phinehas, these two worthless sons of Eli. Uh, it's about the ministry, how the ministry can be corrupted. And uh, so you need to watch out for your ministers because we want to have ministers that are faithful and not ministers that are going to rob and, and uh, take from the sheep and, and mis- misuse God's people. Um, it's not about bad parenting. Surprisingly enough, in some of the commentaries, the commentators say, well, this is telling us that if Eli had been a better parent, Hophni and Phinehas would have been okay. He did a bad job raising his kids. Well, the same thing happened to Samuel, and the same thing happened to David, and the same thing happened over and over again in the Bible. You find this pattern of God not using the ones you would expect and going some other direction. Now that part is applicable. So what is this text about? In fact, what is the book of Samuel about? So you have to know the context, why the book was even written, who it was written to, and how, how the people of that time appropriated it. Then we can go to 3,000 years forward and begin to glean from it how to apply it to our life. We don't want to make a one-to-one correspondence because that's where bad interpretations come from. Good interpretations start with a scripture. They look at it for what it meant to the people it was meant to be written to. And then all the historical changes and contingencies and then how that scripture is applicable to us. So what is the book of Samuel about? Very simple. It's about the kingdom finding its true king. These lives of these men and women and people were, some of them lived for, David lived for 80 years. Samuel lived for a long time. He was very old when he died. And yet we have only these small little glimpses into history because there's a thread as we're teaching our kids in the two Sunday school classes and also in the adult class there is a thread of redemptive history historical redemptive history that flows through all of the scripture and what we want to communicate to you and what we have to do ourselves as as the pastors and elders in the church is apply these scriptures correctly So God is looking for his true king. In fact, he's going to raise up the true king. And all that's building up from the time of Hannah's barrenness, she couldn't have children, and then God came and visited her. That's a word for he came and and, and did, did his thing with her in blessing her. He reverses the barrenness of Hannah. It's like a it's like a signal to the to the nation. You also are barren, but I am going to now reverse it. I'm going to bring you a true prophet. The word of God is going to come again. You're going to have authentic, true, sincere priests that are going to offer sacrifices and mediate for me. It's not going on now. Look at these two knuckleheads who are distorting uh, God's worship. And I am going to bring you 
a Mashiach, a king, an anointed one, Christos in Greek, that you need to help guide you, to defend you, to rule over your hearts and minds, and to conquer all his and your enemies. That's from the Westminster Confession, uh, Westminster Shorter Catechism, how Christ fulfills the office of a king. He subdues us to himself. He rules and reigns over us. He protects us and defends us. And he destroys all his and our enemies. And the great enemy of humankind is what? Death. Death is a result of sin. And our great king comes and does it. So we're, that's a picture of what Samuel's doing. So all of our thinking is to be anticipating how we're looking for that true king. We don't know who he is yet. In fact, Saul's going to come and he's not. But then we're going to come to David and we're going to see who he is and why he's the true king. It's absolutely marvelous. So this morning we're going to look at this. There's a lot of ways to break this down, by the way, but I'm going to do it this way. God is about to restore his kingdom and so what he does is three things that I've identified in this text. First, he is going to restore God's word. Then he's going to restore God's mediation, secondly. And thirdly, he is going to rule and reign through God's faithful kings. We'll look at these three things and how this text anticipates it. Look at your bulletin and how it's broken down. There's, you'd have to really not want to see this, to see it. It's so plain. But the author has done something He's punctuated this entire narrative with this simple phrase. Look at verse 11 and verse 18. I've offset them in your text, in your text, in your bulletin. 21b, 26, 31, which we printed. We didn't necessarily get to that today. And also verse 21 in chapter 3. In every one of these scriptures, these verses, he says almost the identical words. Look at them. Samuel was ministering to the Lord in the presence of Eli. Look at, at 3.1. Samuel was ministering in the presence of the, in, to the Lord in the ministry of Eli. Exactly the same words. It's like he had captured all of that text between these two Phrases. And then in between that, he punctuates them. It's like putting parentheses around something. He wants you to see this. So he, he parenthetically, he marks them out using these, these simple lines. 18, Samuel's ministering before the Lord, a boy clothed with a linen ephod. Very interesting. Samuel grew in the presence of the Lord. 21b. 26. Samuel continued to grow in stature and in favor with the Lord and his people. An exact quotation that Luke picks up in his gospel and applies it to Jesus. What he's saying here is that Samuel was born for a purpose. Not to be the king, but he was a judge. He was the judge of Israel all the time he lived up until the time he anointed Saul to be king. But even after that, he acted pretty much like a judge because he, he brought judgment on Saul himself. 
So you have Samuel, a prophet, who is coming back to restore God's word. Look at 3.1. The word of the Lord was rare in those days. This is how he finishes that whole block of scripture. In 3.1 he says, The word of the Lord was rare in those days. It was no frequent vision. It was rare for the people to hear from God. It was rare for them to know their scriptures. People weren't being taught well. The laws were not being obeyed. God was trying to speak to them before this happened, but they ignored And So after the generation of Joshua and they invaded the land, the people began to do whatever seemed good and right in their own eyes. This is a, a population of people who were identical to the pagan nations around them. They didn't know what to do. They didn't know how to act. They didn't even know who they were worshiping anymore. And there was no one to mediate for them and no one to speak God's Word. God's Word, our Bible, it must have preeminence in your life. Now you've, you've heard me and Dawson and all of our elders would tell you, oh yeah, you've got to spend time in the Word. Well, yeah, you do have to spend time in the Word, but that's not all that you're to do is just spend time in the Word. You have to read what the Bible is saying and why it's saying that. Why is it telling us these things? What is God communicating to His people then and now? And one of them is that no word, no exposition of Scripture or false teaching, false exposition of scripture or the taking of scripture and saying oh it's an ancient book it doesn't really apply to us anymore we really don't have to follow this and we don't have to do that you know watering it down or like I told the class this morning saying too much which is something we do in our conservatives or we want it we want to take the word of God and we want it to say a lot more than it really does both errors are wrong. It needs to, we need to let it say what it's saying and apply it to ourselves in an appropriate way. The Word of God, what He has said, you know, these people didn't have a Bible. They, they probably didn't even have scrolls. And even if they had scrolls, they couldn't have read them. They had to learn these things by hearing. And the hearing of God's Word it is life. That's what sustains you. It's what holds you in place. In the beginning was the Word. Jesus, the Word. He embodies the Word. But in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and there was darkness over the face of the deep, and God said, let there be light. See, there's something to hearing God speaking to his people. The preeminence of God's word cannot be overstated. Its absence, listen, the absence of God's word and the faithful preaching thereof is a sign of God's judgment. So you look around in every age, you have seen 
pockets of people who have misinterpreted and misappropriated the scriptures. And history is sadly, to our everlasting shame, rife with that kind of thing. At the same time, there is a stream, a remnant of people who have taken God's word seriously, applied it to their lives and followed him against the current of this world. Like Hannah, like Elkanah, like Samuel, and like David, a man after God's own heart. There are scriptures in your Old Testament. I'm just going to read a few just so you get a flavor of what the preeminence of God's word looks like and its absence. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will send a famine, not a famine of bread or water, but a famine of the word of God. The prophet Amos says, where there's no prophetic vision, the word and the law of God, people are casting off all restraint. They have no guidance for their lives. And in Proverbs it says, my people are destroyed for their lack of knowledge of the word of God. Both individually and corporately, the word of God is our life. It's how we come to know God. It's how we continue with Him. And so just practically speaking, folks, there, you have got to have some time in your life, more than just a few minutes on Sunday morning, listening to me talk about the Bible, but some time in your life where you are systematically reading through the Bible, listening to it, thinking about it, asking questions, how does this apply? What does this mean to me? And it can be a, a, a very, it doesn't have to be hours and hours. Something. But as a pastor, I can tell you, I've talked to a lot of people, Christians. They don't spend any time reading their Bibles. They just, whatever they know about their Bible, they're hearing on Sunday morning, the little bit that Dawson and I are maybe in a Sunday school, and then the rest of the week they're not paying much attention. This is an exhortation to all of us, to our church, to be faithful to the scriptures, also to each of us. To, that is how God restores this nation. He brings them the prophetic office again, the word of God again. They didn't have it for centuries. Next, look at the restoration of God's faithful priesthood. Mediation. This is another thing. You've got to have God's word in your life. But let me say this. You also have got to have God's mediation. You cannot come to God on your own terms. If you come to God and you, do, you, you transact with Him, in other words, I'll do this, you do this. I'll be good, you do that. I'll be sincere and I expect this. You are not talking about Christianity. You, you got another religion. And that's okay. If that's the religion you want, go for it. Pour yourself into it and live a life of uncertainty. Every day of your life you'll be uncertain. Even in Christianity, we have pockets of Christianity, Protestant, Catholic, 
Eastern Orthodox, makes no difference, who still think we should transact with God somehow. And we don't need a mediator. And look at what this author does. He, he highlights, first of all, look at verse 18. Samuel's ministering below a boy clothed in a linen ephod. Here was this little young one who was ministering faithfully to God and his mother made him a little robe each year and took it up to him and he wore this robe. This, and God blesses this family who were faithful to his promises, faithful to his word. Extraordinary. And then right next to that, also set off parenthetically with these parentheses, is the corruption you see in the house of Eli. This was a high priest from the line of Levi. Eli was the son of, or Eli was the son of Levi, who was the son of Aaron. Or Aaron was the son of Levi, and he's a descendant of Aaron. See what these genealogies can do to you? Ugh. But that's why they're in here. And this priest was unfaithful. He meant well, but he just... He didn't know the Lord. He probably knew a lot about Him, but he didn't know Him. And look at what it says here. Look at verse 12. Now the sons of Eli were worthless men. They did not know the Lord. And their sin was very great in the sight of the Lord. And then it's offset by Samuel being faithful. And then look at 22 through 25. Eli was very old. He heard these things. He heard they were sleeping, having sex with the women that, that served. They were acolytes, female acolytes. They were helping and assisting in the worship of God at the temple, at the tabernacle of God. And these men who were the, the clergy, the head clergy, if you will, were taking advantage of them sexually and abusing them. So they're treating God's sacrifices with disrespect, and they're abusing God's people. They're taking, and you can read all the details, it is very interesting how they were corrupting the worship of God and the morality that God had made so clear to his people. The corruption of the house of Eli, listen, what that meant. What that meant is there was no mediation. There was no way. You can see in the text, these people would come and say, look, just keep the fat. Take whatever you want. Even the people knew what was right to do. But their clergy is lying to them and telling them, no, we'll take whatever we want. And if you don't give it to us, we're going to take it by force. And we're not even going to come personally and take it. I'm going to send a servant to come and get it. That's how much pride these men had. And how ignorant they were of God and who they were serving. It's horrific. You can imagine being an Israelite and reading this and going, oh, what, these people are crazy. Bad leaders. No word, no mediation, no character. They may have been very gifted, I don't know, maybe they were. But they didn't know the Lord. And so... It's offset again, and you can see it, the parentheses uh, with another phrase in 26, and you see then the rejection of the house of Eli. This 
um, if you read the whole thing and you, and you spend some time thinking about listening to the words, um, it, is, it is literally terrifying. It is chilling. It's shocking that God comes in and he pronounces a judgment on his high priest and says, I am going to kill you and I'm going to kill your two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, in one day and then I am going to wipe out every vestige of your family. And it all happens in 1 Samuel. The judgment of God falls like a hammer on the house of Eli. A man of God, a prophet, this is rare, remember, look at verse 27. A man of God came to Eli and he said, Thus says the Lord, Didn't I indeed, didn't I truly reveal myself to you and to your fathers? I chose you out of all the tribes of Israel to be my priest. Why are you scorning my sacrifices? Why are you honoring your sons more than me? Why are you fattening yourselves on the choicest parts and giving what's left over to me? You're going to see in the next couple chapters that Eli was blind and he was also very fat. And so when the news came back to him about the defeat of Israel with the uh, Philistines, he falls off his stool and he breaks his neck because he's so fat. Spoiler. You see how this author is using language? I mean, this guy's a brilliant author. Whoever wrote this, Samuel and his school of scribes, whoever they were putting this together, amazing story. Amazing. Chilling It's meant to reach down into our hearts and tell us, look at the faithfulness of God. We say, oh, that's judgment, judgment. That's right. How is he going to provide mediation for you if that's the kind of high priest you have, if that's the kind of sons he has, if that's the kind of world you're living in? And God loves his people to this extent that he gives them faithful priests. He removes the evil and brings the good. You can't have one without the other. God never just does something and then leaves it. He is always about judgment and redemption. There's always another side. This is why we try to tell you he's always faithful. Eli could have repented. He didn't. His sons could have listened. They didn't. Behold, this is later in the the end. I just want you to get a a flavor for the chilling, how these words just, if if you understood that world, you would have seen how chilling this is for God to come and speak directly to you and say, I'm going to kill you and your family. There's no hope for you. They could have repented, but they didn't. In fact, they got worse. Behold, the days are coming. I will cut off your strength. That means your progeny. And there won't be an old man in your house. And those that are spared, listen to this. It just makes my hair stand on end. And those that are spared will weep out their eyes and grieve their heart. And all your descendants 
shall die by the sword. And this will be a sign to you. This is how you'll know that I'm not whistling Dixie. That it's true, it's going to happen. Hophni and Phinehas will die on the same day. And they did. And then, in verse 35, this is, what, this is how you see God's redemption. Look, verse 35. I, the Lord, will raise up for myself a faithful priest who shall do according to what is in my heart and mind. I'll build him a sure house and he, this faithful priest, shall go in and out before my anointed, my king, my Mashiach, my Christos, forever. God is saying, I'm going to get rid of these bad, evil priests and I'm going to replace him, them with a faithful priest. And that faithful priest's name is Zadok. He was not from this house of Eli. He was from a different house. And the Zadokites, you can trace their history back in the genealogies of the Old Testament. This was a faithful family who were zealous for God. And so later, another spoiler, when David takes the throne, he has a priest named Abiathar, and Abiathar is a descendant of Eli, and Abiathar stays faithful to David throughout his reign until David appoints Solomon his heir. And an older one of the brothers, Adonijah, uh, puts together a coup. And they're going to overthrow Solomon and they're going to place Adonijah on the throne. This is why you've got to love this book, folks. You've got to love it. Here's a, here's a coup, a plot, a conspiracy. And they get Joab, David's general, and they get Abiathar, David's high priest. Those are the two people you need in order to to create a coup. And then they took Adonijah and they proclaimed him king and they sided with the wrong guy. And so after David dies, he said, or before he dies, he tells his son Solomon, I want you to do, bring the Lord's judgment, not mine. David didn't take vengeance. Bring God's judgment on the house of Eli and the house of Joab. And he did. Both of them died once Solomon became king. Zadok was the high priest and all of his descendants throughout the the monarchy in Israel, they faithfully followed. They went in and out. That was what the priest did. The priest would go ahead and the, the, the other priests would follow and then in the procession would be the king and then his officials and his sons and they would all go up to the temple. You see this over and over again led by the high priest. And this priest, Zadok, and all of his descendants were David, the true king's high priest. See, you've got to have mediation, folks. The Bible, here's a principle. You can write this down in the front of your Bible. God says from Genesis to the end of the Bible, no mediator, no me. You don't get me without a mediator. And if you try to transact with God without a mediator, you have nothing. You come like this beautiful hymn we sing, 
Nothing in my hand I bring, simply to thy cross I cling. Naked come I to the flood. Cleanse me, wash me, or I die. You see, you don't transact with God. How would you? We don't have enough currency. We don't have the right currency. If you had everything in the world, it would not be enough. And so Christianity is telling you it's not enough. Come to me, all you that labor and are heavy laden. I will give you rest. So what is the conclusion? Well, first of all, listen, we're going to close right now. You can't live. You cannot thrive. You cannot even take a breath in the kingdom of God without his word. That is your life. The meat and the drink, the the bread, the wine. This is what we have to have in order to live. You can't live without it. Simple and yet so profound. You cannot approach God without a mediator and he has never failed to provide graciously a mediator. In the Garden of Eden, it was himself. For Abraham, it was a ram caught in the thicket instead of his son Isaac. For Moses, Moses was given a sacrificial law. And then when the people messed up several times in the wilderness, Moses offered himself. He said, go ahead and kill me. Just don't hurt the sheep. David, when he sinned and took a census of his army and his people, God brought judgment against Jerusalem. And David said, take me. These sheep have done nothing. And in the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus said, I am he you seek. I'm the one you seek. Let these go. No mediation, no me. And finally, how in the world are you going to defend and defeat and stop the evil in this world. Someone asked in Sunday school this morning, how, how do you stop this? Right here. This is the 23rd uh, question in the shorter catechism, our kids' catechism, children's catechism. What offices does Christ execute as our Redeemer? Listen to this. Why Christ as our Redeemer executes the office of a prophet, a priest, and a king, both in his estate of humiliation and exaltation. And then it goes on to, dis- to what, is, what does the office of prophet mean? What does the office of priest mean? What does the office of king mean? I already showed you what king meant, uh, question 26, that he rules us, he subdues us. God took all these offices and put them in this one man. Jesus was not a priest from this line of Levitical priests of the tribe of Levi or Aaron. What tribe did he belong to? Judah. And yet, listen to what the scriptures say about our king. 
We have a great high priest, Jesus, the Son of God, not a high priest unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who in every way was tempted and tried as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence come to the throne of grace and obtain mercy and help in time of need. Jesus is the guarantee of a better covenant. The former priests died, but he holds his priesthood permanently because he lives. He continues forever. The other priests would die. And so they had to get, find more priests and more priests. But he is able to save to the uttermost those who come to him through those of us who come to him through Christ our Savior since he always lives. Listen, this is a priest who always lives to make intercession for you. Mediate for you. He has no need like those priests to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for the sins of others. No, he did this when he offered himself. Christ entered once and for all into the holy place not into the holy place made with hands, but the one that's in heaven, to appear before the very presence of God on our behalf, not with the blood of bulls and goats and calves, but with His own blood, securing for us eternal redemption. Therefore, He is the mediator of a new covenant to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. Do you see that God did something for you and I in our redemption? Why did he do it? So that you could have his word and read his word. So that you could always know that there is someone mediating, interceding for you on your worst day, on the worst day of your life, when you're nothing but a failure. He is there redeeming and helping and interceding. He's never turning his head, holding his nose at you never going to reject you if you turn to Him, if you will repent and believe Him. And He is your King forever. Will you trust Him? Will you subdue? Give Him your heart. I hope you will. Let's pray. Father, please help us to give ourselves to You completely, to trust You, to order our lives around you and your word, your mediation, and your kingship. You are our true prophet, our priest, and our king. We ask you to do this, please, through Christ our Lord. Amen.